Acts 13, 1 to 5, hear the word of the Lord. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I chose this text for today, I had this nagging idea in the back of my mind that I had preached on this somewhat recently. And so I went back and I found that almost exactly two years ago, I preached on this text. And uh, so normally I don't repeat texts in the same place that I've preached in the last few years. But I went back and looked at my notes, and sometimes when I go back and look at my notes from previous sermons, I'm exceedingly embarrassed because they just seem terrible to me. But I looked at these notes, and I thought, these aren't bad. And and there's some things that probably bear repeating, not in exactly the same way, but some, some ideas that bear repeating periodically in our church, and particularly because something significant has happened between two years ago and now. Because two years ago, when I preached on this text, I was urging our church to take its place in the work of God in the world by sending out our own with our own money. That was the urge two years ago, and today we're doing that. And so we look at this text not as theoretical, not as, well, maybe someday we'll get around to doing that. Yes, that's something that perhaps we should consider. Yes, that's right. Let's do that at some point. But we're doing it today. And so as we look at this text of this church sending out its own, supported with its own money, then now we have a real strong connection with what was going on uh, so many so many decades and years and centuries ago. Now, this um, this text is actually a, a, a new thing happening in the history of the world, if you will. It is a church planning a mission. And uh, up to this point, it has been spontaneous growth of the church. It has been God pushing them out with, with persecution. And they've gone around speaking the word of God. But it wasn't really planned. It just happened. It was spontaneous. And and it could have continued that way for a while, but but they found a need to make a, a plan. But once again, it's not just their plan, it's the Holy Spirit pushing them out. Now let's learn a little bit about this church in Antioch. Uh, there were different Antiochs. This is Antioch in Syria. And this church got started as a result of the persecution in Jerusalem. If we go back to chapter 11 of Acts and look at the history of this church in verse 19 it says now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews but there were some of them 
men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Now, this word Hellenist could mean Greek-speaking Jews, or it could mean Gentiles. It could mean actual Greeks, non-Jews. Also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So it was started by persecution, but then it was consolidated because the uh, apostles in Jerusalem were hearing about this revival breaking out in Antioch and even including Gentiles. And they wanted to check this out, so they sent Barnabas. Barnabas went and he said, this is something wonderful going on here. So he stayed put there and began teaching them. And then he had a friend, Saul, this man Saul, who's gotten converted, and he went and looked for him. And he brought him there, and for a whole year they were ministering there to that church, first called Christians there. Now, when we come back to our text, we find that this church was stacked. This church had a deep, deep bench of teachers and of prophets. It says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And here it doesn't distinguish, it doesn't describe exactly what are the the activities of the prophets and of the teachers. It looks like the teachers were the regular instructors of the church and the prophets were organs of special information that that came at at, at different times and we'll see some special information that was coming to them. And it names them here. Barnabas. Barnabas uh, was called the son of encouragement. He's the one that got that got Paul into the circle of the apostles. He was from Cyprus, so he wasn't from here. He was from the island of Cyprus. And then next in line was a man called Simeon, and it said he was also called Niger, which would mean something like the black guy. So this guy was probably from Africa. He had darker skin than the rest, and and it's kind of refreshing here how they weren't uptight about that sort of thing. They just they said, this is the black guy among us. Is a, We call him Niger. And he was, he was also probably not from there. And then Lucius was not from there either. Lucius was from Cyrene, which is in present-day Libya. It was, uh, it was North Africa, so he was definitely from Africa. And then we have Menaean, who was the politically connected one. He was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, it's hard to keep the Herods straight here. But this was the Herod that killed John the Baptist, and this was the Herod that interrogated Jesus. So this is that Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, and he was a lifelong friend of his. And then there was, last but not least, Saul. And Saul was the, the new guy. He was the guy that, that had been helped. He was kind of the assistant pastor, if you will. So Barnabas was something like the senior pastor of the church, and then he had this, this amazing staff, if you will, and then he brought Saul on as a helper in that church. Now, um, it says here that they were worshiping in verse 2. They were worshiping. Actually, it's literally they were ministering to the Lord. And this, this word ministering to the Lord is a word that come, that was used in the temple sacrifice. It was in the temple offerings, the temple service. And so they were, they were very self-consciously 
the, the fulfillment of the, of the temple worship. They were the, the, uh, the fulfillment of all that had come before and they were continuing to do, but now in a realized way, in a fulfilled way, what Israel was always supposed to do and minister to the Lord. So they were the, the new temple. They are the new temple of the Lord. And it says also that they were fasting. It says that they were fasting twice. It says that they were fasting. Now, it doesn't, um, there's, there aren't really instructions in the New Testament about fasting a little bit. Jesus gave some, some instructions about fasting. And basically what he said was, when you're fasting, don't, fasting, don't make a big deal of it. Don't, don't placard the fact that you're fasting. Don't disfigure yourself. Don't go around saying, woe is me, I'm fasting. Look how spiritual I am. It says, wash your face. Don't let anybody know that you're fasting. That's the instruction we have. But we're never told to fast. It assumes that Christians will fast. Jesus did not say, if you fast. He said, when you fast, when you give alms, when you pray, when you fast. So it was just assumed that fasting would be a normal part of what Christians do. Now, we do a little bit of that in our church. We we, we promote a monthly fast on Mondays, and, and some have a weekly fast on Mondays uh, during the prayer time. But I would urge you to consider this idea of fasting. And maybe maybe it's a new idea to you, but, but maybe to take some baby steps, and we can talk about some baby steps to how to get into fasting, how to say no to our our appetite in order to develop not just a, a rumbling in our stomach, a hunger, a physical hunger, but a hunger for God. Because look at the kind of things that happen when the people of God, of God are ministering to the Lord and fasting. Notice what happens here. It doesn't say that there's a one-to-one correspondence, but while they were doing these things, the Holy Spirit intervened and he said. Now, how he said this, we don't exactly know, but there were prophets in that church. So it looks like he spoke these words through these prophets. Set apart for me Barnabas, if you will, senior pastor, and Saul, assistant pastor, for the work to which I have called them. But he doesn't say which work that is. Doesn't explain what it is. Sounds, sounds a little bit like Abraham, right? The call of Abraham. Abraham, I'm calling you to go. Where? I'll tell you later. Just just go. And that's similar here. The work to which I've called them. Where are they going? Well, we don't know yet. But it's the Holy Spirit calling them. So set them apart. And then in verse 3, what did they do? It says that after they did what? There we go. Once again, after they fast, fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, this is, as I said, the first time this has happened. This is the first time this kind of thing has happened. Christians have been sent out, but they were, they were, they were sent out scurrying. They were sent out fearful for their lives. They were, they were scattered from Jerusalem because of great persecution. This was not their planning. This was not their doing. But this is a, a new thing happening in the church here. This is a, a plan impulsed by the Holy Spirit, but, but organized by the church. They fasted, they prayed, they laid on hands, and they sent them out. Now, this, this is interesting. This word sent them off, it, uh, it could, could well be translated and maybe should be as they released them. They released them. They gave them up. They gave them over to the word. The Holy Spirit had said, and, and, and then we get to verse four and we find out actually who's the one who sent them. It says, so being sent out by whom? The Holy Spirit. So we probably should translate this. The church released them and the Holy Spirit sent them. So uh, these two actions go together. 
they had to give them up. And they also had to take financial responsibility for them. There is this idea about Paul that he always worked a second job to make ends meet. And actually he did that sometimes, but many other times he received missionary support. What did he do? He did what needed to be done to finance the work. But here in this first missionary journey, we don't find any mention of them doing other work. They, it looks like that they were financed completely by this church that sent them out. And so what did they do? This church gave two of their best. They gave two of their best teachers. If we, if we can look at it that way, their senior pastor and their assistant pastor, and they financed them. They took their own finances and they released them to the work that God was calling them to do. There's several principles here that are applicable to us today. Uh, one is just an observation, and that is that a diverse church, a diverse church is likely to be open to reaching people in other lands. And we have, I mean, it might not be apparent here, but we have something of a diverse church. I think I counted uh, 11 different countries of origin that are represented in our church and, and five different uh, languages that are spoken uh, natively. And so we do have something of a diverse church here. And a diverse church may well be more likely to to have a world vision and to realize that it's not just about our group. Although I have to say, I have to say that I know some very monocultural, monolingual churches that are in areas where they are the only people group around and they have a very big worldview, a very big worldview about reaching the nations for Christ. But we see that even among the, the staff, the pastoral staff, there was a great diversity. Diversity of race, diversity of national origin, diversity of uh, culture, diversity probably of language as well. And they, they had this built-in idea that the gospel is for the world, the world. The second thing is this. There's always work to be done at home. There's always work to be done at home, wherever that home is. But we need to address the imbalance of Christian workers around the globe. The question is not, and some people raise this, and they say, well, there's so much to do here. Of course there's so much to do here. There will always be much to do here. But that's not the question of whether there's the work of the gospel that needs to be done here. The question is the imbalance of Christian workers. And if, if I ask you the question, where are there more Christian workers in Pompano Beach, Florida, or among a South Asian immigrant group of Muslims in New York City? I think the answer is obvious. And so we are addressing that imbalance. If you find 10 persons carrying a log and nine of them are carrying one end of the log and one of them is carrying the other end of the log and you want to help, where do you go? You go to the end where the one person is struggling along carrying that log. That's what missions is about. It's not a question of whether there's work to do here or there. There's work to do everywhere. The question is, who's doing the work? Are there workers there to do the work? And that's what Christian Missions addresses. The third thing is this. We need to release our own people. And even we need to do like they did. We need to release our best people, our, our most effective ministers, our most effective workers, we need to release them, and we need to provide for them with our own money. So this is a question of personnel. 
And this is a question of money. And praise be to God, that's what we're doing here. We're taking one of our best and we're using our own money and we're releasing her to the work to which God has called her. And the the last thing is this. The sending church plays a vital role not only in sending, but also supporting during the whole time. Uh, if we keep reading, you can, we're not going to do it today, but if you read about the rest of this mission, um, it, it, we find that they went out and they, they, they were active in various places, and uh, then they came back to the church in, in Antioch, and they spent much time there. It wasn't a sending them off and forgetting about them. On the contrary, it was sending them off and supporting them the whole time they were out. And so that's, that's what Christian missions is about from the sending church's perspective. And it's, it's always difficult to send people out. It's always difficult to lose people. We've been on, on both sides of that. Um, we, uh, after seminary, some of you know I was a, an associate pastor in a church in, in Maryland, in suburban Baltimore. And we were there for just three years. And the reason we were there for three years is they called us and they said, we want you to come and minister among us, and then we want to send you out with our own money. And after three years, they sent us out. And I don't think that was to get rid of us. I really don't. Because after three years, they loved us dearly. And we love them dearly as well. And so it was costly for them. And this church supported us the whole time, the 28 years we were in Mexico. And they did so sacrificially. They lost their pastor, but they kept supporting us so that the church in Mexico could have a pastor. They lost their building because things went poorly with them, but they kept supporting us. They put missions as a priority, even above their own needs. And finally, finally, I had to beg them to stop supporting us because they needed to support, be able to pay their own pastor. And with with sadness, with sadness, they stopped doing that. But you know what? They still pray for us. And periodically, they ask me to send a video greeting to tell them about the work here. And they, they, they publish that greeting. They show it in their worship service because they're continuing to pray for the work here. It's that kind of a church. And it wasn't easy for them. It was, it was costly for them. But they, they showed me and showed us what it is to be a missionary church. And then in Guadalajara, we didn't have a big church. I mean, it was a couple hundred, maybe up to 300 But even when it was about 100, we sent out our first group to plant another church. So we were not very big, but we we four times we sent out a group and we said, anybody who wants to can go. And guess who went? Not the people who are just sitting there doing very little. Our best workers, they're the ones who said, we want to go. We want to reach new people. We want to go to another part of the city. And so we would four times, we'd basically cut off an arm and say, go. And do it. And now we're doing that here. Feels like we're cutting off an arm, doesn't it? But but we're really we're really giving to the work of the gospel. And yes, is it going to cost us here? Sure. Are we going to miss Allison? Terribly. Are things not going to be as good because she's not here? Yeah, they're not going to be as good because she's not here. Until God raises other people up. And that's what happened in in the church down there when when the first Sunday after we'd send out a group of, of 30 or so people and we come to church and all these empty seats, 
And I'd say to the church, guess what? Now we need to fill those seats back up. And so it kept the church hungry for growth because we're always taking people and always sending them out. And so we realized that we needed to keep growing as well. Now, Barnabas and Saul are not called missionaries here, but later, uh, later they're, called, they're called apostles, sent ones. And this is the norm. This is the norm for sending missionaries. It's the church and it's the Holy Spirit. Who sends missionaries? The church sends missionaries and the Holy Spirit sends missionaries. And that's a comfort both to the church and to the missionaries. That's a comfort to the church because we'll wake up probably next week, next Sunday, and we'll say, what did we do? What, what were we thinking? How did we let her get away? And we need to remind ourselves, well, it's the church and it's the Holy Spirit. And there'll be some hard times for Allison too. There were many times on the mission field I would say, what in the world am I doing here? I'm accomplishing nothing. And, 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 and I'm, I'm not equipped for this. It, there, we need to have a better missionary out here. But then I would remind myself that I wasn't there just because of my own desire to be there. I was sent by the church and I was sent by the Holy Spirit. And that's something that missionaries need to remember as well in order to keep going during, their, during those difficult times. Another thing, when we, when we see what they did, this is interesting. I'd never looked at it through these eyes before. But it says they were sent out by the Holy Spirit in verse 4. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus. Now, that's a relatively accessible place. They didn't start by going to the ends of the earth. They had something of a, an internship in Cyprus. And that's what Allison's going to do. She's going to have an internship. She's staying. Somebody asked me, is she going to be an international missionary? I said, Yes and no. She's staying within the boundaries of the United States, but she's going to a people group from outside the United States. So yes, she's going to. And here they went to Cyprus. Barnabas was from Cyprus. This was his home island. He, he, he knew the culture. He knew the people. He knew the language. And, and so they went to a place that was 60 miles off the coast. They went to a place that was, that was Barnabas's hometown. And they also went to a place that was not completely unevangelized. We look back in, in, in chapter 11, it said that the gospel had already gotten to Cyprus in some measure. And so this was a, a relatively soft start, if you will. It got harder later when Paul was almost stoned to death. But they started in a relatively accessible place and they also went to the synagogue. That was a familiar place for Paul, a familiar place for Barnabas. And so they, they took steps into this, this new mission field. And I've never looked at it again uh, in the, in the, with this, this perspective of that's how our missionary organization works. It, it provides internships. It provides two-year opportunities. It provides then career opportunities in some of the remotest places around the world. And I see the wisdom of that shown here. Now, what they did was they, they went to the synagogues of the Jews in, in major cities. They would try to preach there. And then if they got rejected, then they would go out to the Gentiles. But they would start with what they knew. And on this first journey, they visited seven cities. They left behind churches with elders appointed in each of those churches. Then they returned to Antioch. This is in chapter 14. They reported and they spent much time there. And we look forward to that, don't we? When Allison comes back and reports and spends much time with us, which shows that the relationship was ongoing here. 
Each time we, we sent out a new group from our church in Guadalajara, I have to admit that I had to struggle with envy. I always wanted to be in the group that was going out. And the elders kept saying to me, no, Larry, we need to keep the mother church stable. We need to keep the mother church growing, so we need you here. And I'd say, okay, okay. And I love that church. It wasn't that I didn't want to be their pastor, but I was always envious about getting those who got to go out and to start something new. Actually, that's one of the reasons we came back here, to start something new once again. I remember Sandy was there it was when we were in seminary. We met in seminary in Philadelphia. And Dr. Greenway was actually Dr. and Dr. Greenway. Uh, both of them had their doctorates, and they were both missionaries in Sri Lanka. They were missionaries in Mexico, and he taught missions. And I remember he was talking about missions. And to me, he seemed like an old man. I'm guessing he was maybe about my age now, but at the time, he seemed like an old man to me, uh, and he was talking about missions, and he was a big guy with huge feet, big limbs, a big Dutch guy, had a big Dutch beard, big gray Dutch beard, and as he was talking, then he just stopped, and he leaned up against the wall, and he put his gray head against the wall, and the tears streamed down his face, and he said, oh, to be young again. He wanted to go out again, but he was too old to do it, he thought. But he wasn't too old to send other people. And I get it. <laughs> As I see Allison going out, I'm like, gosh, am I too old to do that? Or should I stay here and send some people out? And, and if, if that stirs something in your heart, if you look at what Allison's doing and you say, that's great. I'm kind of envious about her getting to go out. Maybe God's stirring in you to be one of the next ones we send out from this place. Now, we're struggling with the difficulty of giving her up, giving up our own beloved daughter. But there is something that we always need to keep in mind as we give up our sons and our daughters for the salvation of the world. And that is that it's exactly what God has already done. Why is, why is the Christian faith a faith that gives up its sons and daughters for the salvation of the world? Because that's what God did in giving up his son for the salvation of the world. God sent his one and only. God sent his very best. God sent his son and his son gave his life and the father and the son gave the spirit and the spirit sends out his people to the ends of the earth to bring the message of Jesus and salvation to them. It's not an anomaly. In fact, this is the normal behavior of Christians to send out. Why? Because we worship and serve a God who sent his son for us. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for Jesus who was sent for us. And we thank you that we get to imitate you in sending our daughter for the salvation of others. And so now hear our prayers as we set her apart and release her for the work to which you've called her. I'm going to ask Allison to come up and um, we're going to pray for Allison. We're going to have congregational prayer. I invite anybody who'd like to 
to pray for Allison.